David Solomon. Podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. To find out about David's talks, books and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. It's always nice to be here. And I was um, going to talk tonight about... Um, well, obviously, the theme is Teshuvah before we go into Slichot, and we're in the last week of Elul. We're coming up to the home straight to Rosh Hashanah, and obviously, we're thinking about the concept of Teshuvah. We're thinking about ways in which we can uh, not just moderate our behavior. Tanach's on its way. Good. Not just ways in which we can moderate our behavior, but ways in which we can transform our behavior. And lots has been written on Teshuvah, and lots has been thought about Teshuvah. As I've said on many, many times, uh, Teshuvah has often been misunderstood in our generation. People think that a Baal Teshuvah is someone who decides that they're going to become religious, that they're going to keep Shabbat, they're going to keep Kashrut. And that's not really what Teshuvah is. Uh, teshuvah means an absolutely inner transformation of behavior. Hello. Uh, it means abandoning the kind of uh, person you were before and becoming someone who is, in a sense, almost a new type of creation. You're still you, but you realize that your entire mode of operating, especially in relation to other people, has got to change and you go about breaking down who you are and fundamentally reconstructing who you are to change and become a, 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 a person who is a, a far greater realization of their potential spiritually and in every way. But what I wanted to look at, I'm not going to soapbox too much, what I wanted to look at was what examples can we find in throughout the long span of Jewish history and Jewish texts and traditions that give us an insight into the way that Teshuvah is done, the way it could be done better, and famous examples of people who've done Teshuvah. So I'm going to make this, because we're just a small crowd, I'm going to make this a little bit interactive, and we'll see whether or not we can together think of different examples, uh, but obviously I've got a few in mind that I'm going to discuss, so don't get that nervous, awkward feeling that rises inside you that says, I'm going to have to help him out or there's going to be silence. We will have things to talk about, but if you want to contribute, then uh, please feel free to contribute. But who do you think, who do you think, that door's about to open. There we go. Right. You missed a brilliant introduction. You did. And, uh, about, but, but what I'm going to do is, uh, the talk seems a little bit interactive, but I'm going to talk about famous moments of Teshuvah in Jewish history and texts. So the question I just posed is, who's the first person in our tradition to do Teshuvah? And I spoke a little bit about what Teshuvah is, this kind of inner transformation of the sort of person you are. It's not just a case of saying, oh, I'll try and be better, or I'll try and moderate. It's a very fundamental in a change, but who's the first person to effect Teshuvah? I don't like to reward people who come in late, but that's outstanding. <laughs> the first person to effect Teshuvah is in fact Cain. Cain, Cain, I don't know if you heard about it, in the book of Bereshit, in the book of Genesis, yeah? Following the whole expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, Cain and Abel have this foribble, they have an argument, and uh, Cain gets up and he kills his brother. That's a big sin. It's a big sin then, and it's a big sin now. Adam, that is Adam the first, when he was sinned, and we know that he sinned in the Garden of Eden, he hadn't done Teshuvah. He got punished. Getting punished for your sins is not the same as doing Teshuvah. Adam got punished. He and Eve got expelled from the garden, but he, he hadn't done Teshuvah. Cain was the first person to do Teshuvah. And we know that because of the famous words that he said 
when God showed him that there was no way out of this, he had killed his brother, his brother's blood was crying out from the ground, and that Cain himself would be destined to a life of ceaseless wandering, a deeply unstable identity that would never find peace. God decided not to kill Cain, but to simply have him wander around in this kind of non-state. And Cain responded with this tremendous admission and realization when he says the words, Gadol My sin is, my iniquity is too great for me to bear. I think that he kind of was expecting and kind of hoping that God would kill him. But God didn't do that. The Midrash tells us in Yalkut Shimoni that years later, years later, Adam, his dad, is wandering around and comes across Cain and says, Oh, Cain, how's it going? Literally, how, how did it work out with that whole thing? You know, like uh, that judgment that God made on you. How's that going for you? What's happening? So Cain responds, and this is years later, according to the Midrash, Cain responds, oh, it's all good. It's all good. And then what do you mean it's all good? He goes, oh, he says, Cain says, I did teshuva. I did teshuva, and as a result of that, I managed to restore myself to be a mensch. And Adama Rishon goes, what's this teshuva thing? And Cain says to him, well, God's got this kind of mode going on where it doesn't matter what you've done, and look what I did. I, I committed murder. I killed my brother. It was the first murder in history. Was just an awful, awful thing. But even that I was able to come back from because I looked inside myself and I changed myself and I became a better person. And Adam Arishon goes, Teshuvah! What a fantastic idea that the Midrash tells us inspired him to say which famous psalm? A psalm that you're all familiar with. Mizmor Shili Yoma Shabbat Tov Lehodot Lahashem it's good to give thanks to Hashem, which the Midrash tells us was actually written by Adam and was written as a result of his encounter with Cain when he found out the power of this concept of Teshuvah. Although, without getting too mystical, and remember, when we're dealing with Midrash, we're not, I'm, not, I'm fully aware that we're dealing with Midrash. We're not necessarily dealing with capital H history, but we're dealing with high concepts. And in fact, without getting too mystical, the Zohar tells us that Cain's real correction didn't happen till much, much later in another figure in Jewish history, who is Yitro, Jethro. Jethro is a soul descendant of Cain, and through his restoration to the Jewish people, Jethro eventually fixed up the sin of Cain. That is, for those of you who are interested in the whole mystical stream of Jewish history, that has to do with the fact that Abel's soul ultimately reincarnated into Moses. But Cain, so we learn, as humanity learns about this concept of Teshuvah from Cain, and in fact, it's pretty um, logical that you would need, in order to teach the whole power of teshuva, you would need a sin that is uh, just heinous in the extreme. And yet it is possible, so it's the first thing we know about teshuva, is that it is possible, it's, the power of teshuva is so immense that however bad your sin is, and I know that because I'm looking at your faces, I know there are some of you sitting there going, oh he has no idea what I do, but however bad it is, you can effect a fundamental transformation inside yourself, not just to not do that anymore, but to be a better person and to be a different person. What would be another case of Tushu? Very good, so very good. 
what would be another case of teshuva? A next kind of like famous case of teshuva. Who can think of one? We'll still we'll stay we'll stay in Tanakh for a little bit. Moshe. Moshe. Where would that be? No, Noah. Where would I'm interested in that in in both those answers, but I'm not thinking of them as examples of teshuva. Moshe, Moshe, obviously pleads to be uh, allowed to complete his what he saw as his mission. But he's not held up as a massive example of teshuva. We imagine that Moshe existed at such a high spiritual level that um, we're not even given access to that level. Noach, uh, it doesn't do teshuva from uh, from what I can see. I mean, he teshuva from what? From the from what happens after the flood? No, I'm thinking he pleaded with God. Uh, when God said, I'm going to destroy the entire world, yes, he said, no, 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 or I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, you're thinking of Abraham. Okay. Okay. Noah famously did not plead for humanity. Noah famously did not go, what do you mean, God, you're going to kill the whole world? Noah said, oh, you want to build an ark? Okay, I'll build an ark, I'll save my family, that's cool. Sorry? Ruth and Naomi. No, I'm not seeing that as teshuva. I'm obviously a stunning story of change and whatever, but no, this, yeah, Miriam. So Miriam is an interesting example. Miriam sins, in a sense, and she's punished, but punishment, and she has to sit outside the camp, and she has leprous for a week, but that's not the same as teshuva. The example I'm going to is, of course, the famous example of David HaMelech. King David. Now, I don't know if you heard about it, but King David did something that was pretty bad. Put your hand up if you know what I'm talking about. Seriously, that's, that's, there's no embarrassment here. No one's going to embarrass themselves more than me, so don't be scared. Put your hand up if you don't know what I'm talking about. You can't put your hand up for neither or both, right? Once again, who knows what I'm talking about? Oh, you know what I'm talking about. And who, and who doesn't know what I'm talking about? Okay, so that's the majority doesn't know what I'm... But I guarantee you do. I'll give you the, the story in, in tremendous uh, brevity because it's not, I'm not... I don't want to focus on what he did as much as I want to focus on the response to it. But uh, if you look at the second book of Melachim, of the book of Kings, you'll see there that... Uh, in chapter 11, you'll see there but that, that David Amalekh is already king, he's established himself, and uh, he's so great and established, in fact, that he's not really going out to war anymore. He's got some very good generals who'll do that for him. So one summer evening, he's in Jerusalem, his army's out, and uh, he's uh, sitting, uh, you know, smoking a vape, whatever he does, on, a, on the rooftop up there, uh, in, in Jerusalem and uh, he looks across at a, at a neighboring uh, a rooftop as you do in Jerusalem and he sees a woman bathing on the rooftop and uh, he's pretty taken by that. Um, it's a bit pervy but he's taken by it and he summons that woman to him and uh, uh, to cut a long story short, uh, he uh, has uh, relations with her and she becomes pregnant. Problem is, she's married to someone else. So, but that person that she's married to, that man happens to be out with the army fighting battles. So he tries to get that guy recalled so that he can come back and spend a night with his wife. So it will look, it will look kosher. Um, but uh, he does, he refuses to do that because he is with the army. So then he orders, King David orders, that this particular individual, the husband, be placed in the front line of a very serious and heavy assault against a particular walled city in the course of which he's killed. Um, and then when that happens, he takes uh, Bathsheba as his own wife. The prophet Nathan comes to David and says to him, King, uh, I have a little justice problem. 
a little social justice problem. And he gives him the famous parable. There's a, there's a, a visitor to a, to a town, and uh, he's a visitor of, he's a guest of the wealthiest man in town, who has lots of flocks of sheep. And then there's another family in town who is very poor, and they only have one lamb. In fact, this family is so poor, this lamb, it's more like a, a household pet. It eats at the table with them, it's, it's pathetic. So when the visitor comes to town, the rich man, instead of taking one of his own sheep to feed the guests, he goes to the poor person's house, takes their lamb, slaughters it, and feeds it to his guest. So he tells this story to David Amelech, and David Amelech is just appalled. And he goes, that is the most horrendous thing I've ever heard. That person should die. I don't care. That's just disgusting. And then Nathan the prophet famously turns to him and says, you are that man. Atahaish. And as soon as he says those words, David Amelech, King David, collapses in realization at what he has done. And he says the famous words, very, very simply, Chatati Lashem, I have sinned to God. And then he doesn't say another word, but breaks down. And uh, the, the, it turns out, I mean, the, the child is born and it lasts a week, the child dies. Um, and David is told that scandal and bloodshed will never escape his household as a result of this, which it doesn't. But his teshuvah, his inner realization and his transformation is accepted. It's a very famous case of teshuvah, but we have a question. The question is, and it's really interesting, and, 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 and because, because they're not that far apart, is that which other king, very close to David, sinned, and said similar things. Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. David was the second king of Israel. Saul also sinned. He was given a command by, the prophet, by God through the prophet Samuel to go and wage a war against Amalek and to fulfill certain conditions about that war, and he did not. And he kept Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. It wasn't just any war. It was war against Amalek. And he kept the king alive, and that was a tremendous act of disobedience against the word of the prophet. It, had, it has all sorts of moral dimensions. It's not a simple story to relate, but that's not the focus of it. The focus of it is the fact that when Samuel came to Saul and said, you've done the wrong thing, Saul also said, I have sinned. But nevertheless, the kingdom was ripped away from him him and his household. He died, his, he ended up dying, his son's dying, the whole of the kingship was taken away from him because of that sin. So what was the difference between Saul's khatati, I have sinned, and David's khatati, I have sinned? And the difference is, if you look carefully, and I'll take the Tanakh, if you look carefully at the, uh, oh, this will be, this will be interesting if I can't find it, that'll be a bit embarrassing. That won't happen. Um, listen carefully. Vayomer Shaul el Shmuel. Shaul said to Shmuel, Chatati, I've sinned. Ki avarti et pi Hashem vet dvarecha. I transgressed over the the word of God, uh, the, the mouth of God, and your words. Kiyareti et ha'am, because I feared the people. Vaishmab vaishmab kolam, and I listened to their voice. What did he do? Why is that? A problem. Why, why? Why is that level of teshuva somewhat problematic? He gave an excuse. Exactly. He justified it. 
precisely why Adam Harishon, Adam's response in the Garden of Eden, was an inadequate response. Starts by telling God, ah. God says, well, how do you know you're naked? He goes, ah, you know, I'm naked. I was afraid. Did you eat of that tree? How do you know you're naked? Oh, you know, you put these things here. You put the snake there. The snake convinced my wife, seduced my wife. My wife gave it to me. Excuses. Shaul, I was afraid of the people. Peer pressure, social pressure. David Amelech, no excuses. I've sinned. It's a very, very powerful thing for us to realize about Teshuvah. There are no justifications for our bad behavior. We own them. We are responsible for them. That's one of the key moments in Teshuvah is when you realize that not only are you the only person who can fix this, but you're the only person who's responsible for this state. Therefore, you are the only one who can fix it. And everybody has the power to fix it. But every time we try and think of excuses for our behavior and we blame this and we blame that, and it's very, very common. I mean, today, the whole industry of psychology is trying to work out, ah, oh, what stuffed up relationship did you have with your parents that turned you out to be this and this and this? Oh, you know, you were bullied at school. Oh, you were this, you were that, you were this, you were that. And that's why you're a piece of drick. But at the end of the day, everybody's responsible for their own actions. There are no excuses. A person is always responsible for their actions and there's no excuses. If you can find excuses, and sometimes they're very comforting, but it's not Teshuvah. Teshuvah is when you own it yourself and you change. What's another case? China. You're winning. What's your name? <laughs> Morris. Hello, Morris. You're winning. But you only get a half point for that one. Where, where's Jonah's Teshuvah? In the way. Yeah, that's interesting. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. On board, on board, he has a realization as to why the ship is in trouble. Everybody know the story of Jonah? Put your hand up if you don't know the story of Jonah. Okay. It's okay not to know the story of Jonah. I guarantee that even people that didn't put their hand up only know it on a certain level, including myself. It's a very, very, very deep book. When do we read the book of Jonah? The book of Yonah? On Yom Kippur. Mincha on Yom Kippur. We read it in Yom Kippur afternoon, exactly. So you can imagine that the theme of Teshuvah, if you're going to have, like, you know, that's, that's, that's like, like the AFL Grand Final, that one. I mean, the Haftarah of, of, of Mincha and Yom Kippur is going to be uh, dealing with Teshuvah. So, Yona is told. Now, when is Yona? When is Yona? Oh, is it last week? Is it 500 years ago? 1,000 years ago? When is it? Is it during the second temple, the first temple? When is it? 2,200 years ago. <laughs> you, see, you see, you give man money at the casino and he's just throwing it on red and black. No, that's, that's way out. Uh, no, no, well, not way out, but we're, we're more likely 2,700 years ago. So it's during the 8th century BCE. It happens at a time when... Uh, we actually, Yonah is, is sent from the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, which is doing very, very well economically, and it's a very stable time. Uh, what's fascinating about Yonah, of course, is that he is a prophet that is sent to arouse a totally different nation to Teshuvah. This is not about the Teshuvah of the people of Israel that all the other prophets were told to prophesy and inspire people about, this is a completely separate Gentile nation living 500 miles away from the land of Israel. And Yonah is sent to them, first of all, to show the universality of the need for Teshuvah, that God demands justice 
and the eradication of corruption from all societies. And Yona did not want to go. Why did Yona not want to go? He ran away. Yona ran away from God's command to prophesy to this nation. What nation was it that he was to prophesy to? Well, Nineveh is a city. The Assyrians. The Neo-Assyrians. Very good. The Assyrian Empire was this unstoppable empire. Now, in the 8th century, they were just seriously getting going. Yona, we're told by the sages with tremendous historical insight, did not want to go because he knew that if he went and if the Neo-Assyrians, they didn't call themselves the Neo-Assyrians, if the Assyrians did repentance, then they would have earned sufficient merit to be given the agency by God to act as the punishment for Israel, which is precisely what subsequently happened because in a few decades later, the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. Yonah ran away. He obviously, you know the story, the boat's in trouble. He's thrown off the boat because he says the reason the boat's in trouble is because I've disobeyed God. And he gets swallowed by a great big aquatic animal. Now, inside the animal, Yonah does offer a very, very contrite prayer. But we don't necessarily see this as teshuva. It really is a prayer asking God to spare his life because of the sorrows, because of the trouble that he's found himself in. And in fact, if you find yourself in the belly of a whale for a couple of days, it's not going to be comfortable. You're going to be in sorrows and you're going to die unless something miraculous saves you and the, the whale eventually vomits Yonah out. But that's not the real story of Teshuvah. That's not what we're reading about. What Teshuvah are we reading about in the book of Yonah? What Teshuvah are we reading about in the book of Yonah? By the way, many, many literary critics find Jonah's prayer in the whale so awful that they think that the animal actually spat him out because of that prayer. What <laughs> is... That's true. That is, it's not regarded as one of the most uh, brilliant prayers in uh, the whole of Jewish history, but it is, uh, it's nevertheless uh, was effective enough. Yonah... And, and also you can see by the end of the book that Yonah has not had a transformation of personality. He's still cross with God at the end because God then does not destroy Nineveh. So he's, he's annoyed with God. So he hasn't really affected a major change. The story of Teshuvah is the story of the repentance of the people of Nineveh. Jonah walks into the city eventually and he walks into the center of town and he thought it would take quite some time to get this message out there, but he only stands there once in the middle of the town. And he goes, in 40 days' time, if you do not eradicate the corruption in this society, God is going to destroy it. And immediately, the king of Nineveh takes off his shoes, puts on sackcloth, pours ashes on his head, sits on the ground and fasts. And the entire population fasts. They fast so profoundly that they don't even feed their animals. We're told that the Teshuvah effected in Nineveh was so profound that if someone had built a house using a stolen beam, that they would demolish the entire house just to return the beam to its original owner. That, of course, is a metaphor for a great many things. And we know, historically, that in around minus 750, but kind of just before, maybe minus 760 more, maybe during just before the rise of Tiglat Pileser, the great Assyrian commander, that Assyria did undergo a kind of religious reform at the time. So many facts in Tanakh match up with what we know about history. But the Yonah story is immensely 
informative to us. Teshuvah has to be complete and it has to be without excuses and it has to be immediate. You can't say, I'm going to do Teshuvah next week. Oh, he's given us 40 days. Well, we've got another 39 to party. And let me tell you that it doesn't mean that you have to become this kind of do-gooder and this kind of wholesome person that only eats organic muesli and, you know. You can still... It's not about what you're doing in your own personal habits. It has to do with your relations with other people. How you relate to them in, and, and, and you're striving for honesty in your relations with them, and with yourself and with God. It's not an easy thing to be a good person. But we all have it within us to do it. And it is not a particularly, it's not a specifically Jewish project either. Teshuvah is profoundly universal. All right. What's another case of Teshuvah? And we'll do one more, we'll do one more from uh, Tanakh. We'll do one more from Tanakh and then we'll move on to other parts of history. Sorry? Um, no, I'm not going to call Esther Teshuvah. That's an interesting one. Oh, I see what you mean. You mean the whole people. That's interesting. That's it. I'll grant that. I'll grant that. I'll grant that. Although it's not obvious in the book of the Megillah because they're fasting for three days in order to ensure the success of the plea and the entreaty against the decree of Ahasuerus. But we're told by the sages that what is behind that, in fact, is the fact that the people had kind of brought that decree on themselves by virtue of having forgotten uh, their unique identity as Jewish people. So there is an element of Teshuvah that is going on in the, in the book of Pur it's Esther. No question. That's really good. But the one I was thinking of, a bit more historical and also still in Tanakh, and that is the famous Teshuvah. Of King Menashe. Put your hand up if you know what I'm talking about. Oh, very good. Oh, very good. No, really. What's your name? Zach. Well done, Zach. So you would know that King Menashe was a king of Judah. This is already after the destruction of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians in, let's say, around minus 720. And we're now we're talking about uh, 60, 70 years after that in the remaining kingdom of Judah. So we're talking Davidic kings. And you know that the, uh, the, the Assyrians came and they tried to destroy Judah under King Hezekiah, Hezekiah, one of the greatest and most righteous kings. But Hezekiah, although he was incredibly righteous, had a son who succeeded him on the throne of Judah in Jerusalem, who was a very, very wicked king. Not just wicked in terms of his own personal habits, but wicked because he really tried to reintroduce all of the horrendous, idolatrous cults and foreign practices that were carried on in the Middle East at the time. And he basically saw himself as a vassal to the Assyrian Empire. Throughout the 8th and 7th centuries, this, everything is about the Assyrian Empire. They are controlling everything. Now... By the time you get to the middle of the 7th century, you're now at the height of the Assyrian Empire and you have rulers like, who's one of the most famous, who's the most famous ruler of the Assyrian Empire? No, 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 Zach. Nebuchadnezzar is a, is a Babylonian. Darius? Darius is a Persian, he's even later. No, when you, when, listen, listen, there's only one name you need to know in terms of Neo-Assyrian, well there's a couple, but one name you'll want to know next time you're at a fancy dinner party and the Neo-Assyrian Empire comes up in conversation. <laughs> the one name you'll want to know is Ashurbanipal. So Ashurbanipal uh, was a, an extraordinary king in the 7th century 
and we know a lot. We know a lot about Ashurbanipal, because famously Ashurbanipal was not meant to be king. He was a prince, and his brother was going to become king, but his brother died, so he had to ascend to the throne. But he, but because he had spent his entire youth not expecting to go to the throne, they taught him all sorts of things that a prince might learn that a king wouldn't need. Such, and one of those things was how to read. So Ashurbanipal was a unique king in the ancient world because he knew how to read. And not only did he know how to read, but he liked reading. So he amassed this incredible and phenomenal library of over 30,000 cuneiform tablets called the Library of Ashurbanipal, which was housed at Ninveh. And then guess what? In the 19th century, when archaeologists are crawling all over that area, what do they find? The library of Ashurbanipal. And then once we were able to uh, decipher the cuneiform tablets, everything about his era and his court and everything about the Assyrian Empire and the way it was run suddenly became known to us, which is why in the 20th century, entire departments were set up just in Assyriology. There are certain ancient world cultures that we know so much about due to archaeology and chronology and so on, such as Egyptology and Assyriology. So, I mean, the library of Ashurbanipal is very famous. So we know that Ashurbanipal, while he might have been relative to other kings, what we might call a little bit enlightened, doesn't necessarily mean that he was nice. And he was a supreme ruler of the massive Assyrian Empire, which was the first, really, of the big global expansive empires that's going to come out in history. The Assyrians invented many things of empires that have become common to empires. And one of those is that every once in a while, if you think that one of your vassal kings is needs some... Uh, reminding about who's boss so you summon them to come to you and uh, pay obeisance to you but Ashurbanipal was famous for uh, degrading the kings that came to him we know of several cases where uh, kings would come and they would have a to, to bow down to, and this kings, kings, would come to Ashurbanipal, to bow down to Ashurbanipal, and they would have a hook put through their lip and would be led around on a chain on all fours and would have to spend the week living in a dog kennel. This is just to remind these kings who the ultimate authority was. Now, let me read you also from Tanakh. Now it's very, very interesting because King Menashe was a terrible king for the Jewish people. And we know, and, and, and the story of Ashurbanipal, in fact, a story of, of not, not Ashurbanipal, that's Ashurbanipal, he was the Assyrian Empire. Menashe was a terrible king for the Jewish people. But the story of Menashe is covered in the book of Malachim, and it's also covered in the book of Divrei Hayamim. What is Divrei Ayamim? What is Divrei Ayamim? Divrei Ayamim is chronicles. You've got the whole of the Tanakh, which is like yay thick, and then right at the back there's a little book called Chronicles, Chronicles 1 and Chronicles 2, which gives you the whole story of the entire Tanakh in about 20 pages. So even with the brevity of material there, it's like an executive summary of the whole Bible. Amazing people don't make more of it. But let me read this to you. Let me just, I'll just read it. I'll read it in the original Japanese. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned 55 years in Yerushalayim. That's the amazing thing. that Everybody wants to know how is it that a king that was so wicked had the longest reign of any king of Judah. 
He reigned for 55 years. He did what was displeasing to God, following the abhorrent practices of the nations that the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. He rebuilt the shrines that his father Hezekiah had demolished. He erected altars for the Baals and made sacred posts. Those of you who are unfamiliar with Baal worship, you should know that um, Baal was a famous storm god right throughout the Middle East. We're not entirely sure uh, exactly what used to happen at Baal's ceremonies, but I can tell you it didn't look like your average shul service. He bowed down to all the hosts of heaven and worshipped them. And he built altars to them in the house of the Lord, of which God had said, My name will be in Yerushalayim forever. He built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of God. He consigned his sons to the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. And he practiced soothsaying, divination and sorcery and consulted ghosts and familiar spirits. He did much that was displeasing to the Lord in order to vex him. He placed a sculptured image that he made in the house of God. The guy took an idol and put it in the temple of which God had said to David and to his son King Solomon in this house and in Jerusalem, which I chose out of all the tribes of Israel, I will establish my name forever. And I will never again remove the feet of Israel from the land that I assigned to their fathers, if only they observe faithfully all that I have commanded them, all the teaching and the laws and the rules given by Moshe. In other words, what's the main job of a king? To make sure that the people have a fundamental observance of the Torah. Otherwise, the people are going to get exiled from the land. You don't have to be, you know, Haredistan. You just have to have a basic acknowledgement of the God of Israel and, you know, a public observance of Shabbat and just don't have any idols. Like, how difficult is that? Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray into evil greater than that done by the nations that the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. God spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not pay heed. Spoke to them through prophets. So God brought against them the officers of the army of the king of Assyria who took Manasseh captive in manacles, bound him in fetters, and led him off to Babylon. By Babylon, you could mean Babylon, but it's still part of the Assyrian Empire at that stage, not Babylon the power yet. In his distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his father. So the Tanakh really confirms the treatment of vassal kings that we found in the library of Ashurbanipal. Manasseh is taken off in chains and in that situation he humbles himself. He realizes that what he realizes. He prayed to God and he granted his prayer, heard his plea and returned him to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord alone was God. Afterward, he built the outer wall of the city of David, west of Gihon, in the wadi on the way to the fish gate, that wall's still there, and he encircled Ophel, he raised it very high, he also placed army officers in all the fortified towns of Judah, he removed the foreign gods and the image from the house of the Lord, as well as the altars he had built on the mount and the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and dumped them outside the city. He rebuilt the Mizbeach, the altar of the Lord, and offered on it sacrifices, and commanded the people of Judah to worship God. To be sure, the people continued sacrificing at the shrines, but only to God etc. The other events of Manasseh's reign and his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel are found in the chronicles of the kings of Israel. His prayer and how it was granted to him the whole account of his sin and trespass and the places in which he built shrines and installed sacred posts and images before he humbled himself are recorded in the words of Hosea. Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried on his palace grounds and his son Ammon succeeded him as king. Ammon turned out to be like his dad on crack, was even worse king. Just one second, Morris. So you can imagine that in a book that in 20 pages summarizes the entire Tanakh, they spend that amount of time talking about this episode with Menashe, that in a far distant land, bound and chained, Menashe was brought to Teshuvah very quickly. It must be a different Menashe than the one we say, may you be... Oh, no, no, yeah, of course, no, no, that's Menashe, the son of Yosef, that's way before, that's in the book of Genesis, that's way before, this is King Menashe, you know, a thousand years later. All right. 
I don't want to run out of time, but I've got three other cases I just want to talk to you about. They are not biblical. Uh, there's a beautiful thing I wanted to talk to you about in the Gemara, and I'm going to do that very quickly in Masechet Yoma. And uh, we all know that one of the things you need to do famously uh, if you want to do Teshuvah is that if you've upset people, and if you've hurt them, you need to do this, even, even if you're not someone who's doing a full-blown inner transformation, you need to do this anyway. If you've upset someone, or you've offended them, or even if you feel that you've offended them, you need to go and ask for their forgi forgiveness. Yep. You need to go and ask. Oh, it's a proper Gomorrah. No translation, huh? So... What's amazing, however, is, is that even though you've got to ask someone, it's incumbent upon you to ask someone for forgiveness, they're not obligated to forgive you. It's the right thing to do if someone comes to you in sincerity and asks you to please forgive them for how they've offended you. But if they do that, you don't, you're not obligated to forgive them. You can say, no, I'm still hurt. And so I can move on, I guess, and I can be civil and polite to you, but I'm not forgiving you. Interesting. No obligation to forgive. Although, obviously, obviously, a kind and righteous and forgiving person will overlook the transgressions of others as God does to us. Now, um, there's a, because the story that I wanted to talk about here, uh, there's actually two stories. I'm going to cover them very quickly. Um, and it's the, fa it's to do with, um, yeah, it's to do with the famous, uh, the, the most famous Amora, really, the guy who started the whole project of the Gemara. He was right at the end of the Mishnaic period and the beginning of the Amoraic period, a guy called Abaricha, who we know as Rav. This is one of the great, great figures. So Rav, he had a particular issue with a butcher, right? The butcher had offended him. You know, someone can get offended by their butcher, it's not difficult. But the butcher didn't come to him. The butcher didn't come to him Erev Yom Kippur, the eve of Yom Kippur, which is the classic time that you ring up everyone you know and you go, listen, could you forgive me if I've offended you? And he was waiting for this butcher to come and the butcher never came. And Rav's going, oh, that's, that's, I'm Rav, that's the butcher. He should go. So Rav goes, Rav says, Amar Azil, ah. So he goes, Amarihu. So Rav says, Ezel Anel Fiusele. I'm going to go to him. And I'm going to go to him as though I'm going to appease him. And then when he sees me, he'll realize that he actually has to appease himself to me. Pagabe Ravuna. Ravuna saw Rav as he's on his way to the butcher shop. Where are you going? Where are you going? Must have had a certain look on his face. He's going, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to make up peace with that uh, particular guy. I'm going to sort it out with him. Oh dear, says Rav Huna. Rav's going to kill someone. He's going to end up killing that guy, I can tell. He knew what was going to happen. He walks into the butcher shop and the butcher's sitting there chopping up bones. He looks up and he sees Rav. Go away. I have nothing to say to you. As he says it, he's chopping the bones. One of the bones flies out from under the hammer, lodges in his throat and kills him. So, if a great... If the greatest sage and rabbi of the generation comes to you and comes all the way to your butcher shop in order for you to be able to work out a resolution to your offending them, it's wise to not tell them to bog off. 
But the next story, I think, is actually even more interesting. Because Rav Have Pasek Sidra Kamed the Rebbe. So this is while Rabbi Yehuda Anasi is still alive. And Rav, who was one of his younger students, was given the opportunity to give a Parsha Shior. Yeah? Probably not the main event happening at the time, but one of the brilliant young students is going to give a Parsha Shior. So as he's giving the Shior, different sages are coming in. So Ayel Ata Ravichia. So Rabichia enters the room. Rabichia, Rabichia, one of the great, great sages of the last generation of the Mishnah, a student of Rabbi Yehuda Anasi. By this time, he's already Rabichia, the great sage. Hadalaresha. So Rav, because you know, you start a Shi'ur and then this great sage walks in, so he starts over from the beginning. Start from the beginning. Ayel Bar Kapara. Then the great sage Bar Kapara walked in. And Rav goes, ah, oh, Bar Kapara's walked in. I'd better start from the beginning again. So he starts in the beginning. Then Rabbi Yudanasi's own son, Rabbi Shimon, the son of Rabbi Yudanasi, walks in. I mean, it's like the, the next Nasi, you know what I mean? The, 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 I, I, I can't. I, 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 he starts again, right? He started the whole shiur over again for each of those three. And then Rabbi Hanina Bachama walks in. He's a great sage. He's a great sage. But, you know, maybe not at the same level, but still a great sage. But Amar, but Rav said, What, I'm going to have to keep going over and over and every time someone walks in, I'm going to have to start the shiur again? I'm going to start the class again? It's a bit like when you came in, Morris. I started again for you, right? But imagine if a whole lot of people kept coming in, right? And then eventually some guy comes in and I don't start again and he gets offended. Right? Lo hadar. He didn't start from the beginning again for Rabbi Hanina Bar And Akbed Rabbi Hanina, Rabbi Hanina took offense. Well, you started again for all these other people, but not for me. How would would have told him afterwards, I imagine. They would have said, we started three times, but when you came in, he didn't. Azal Rav, listen carefully. Listen to this. Listen to this. This is Rav. The Abba Richo is going to become the greatest sage of the Gemara. Azal Rav Legabe, Rav went to Rabbi Hanina, Tleser Male Yom Kippure, 13 Erev Yom Kippurs in a row. Veloi fires. And he wasn't, uh, he, he, he didn't appease him. And he didn't, he, he didn't get over it. He stayed offended. The Gemara then goes on to ask uh, why um, why did Rav do that? Because you're supposed to own, I mean the Halakha is that you're supposed to do three times. So why did he go 13 years in a row? And the reason is because he's Rav. Because he, everything he did, he did. It doesn't mean you can't do three times. It just means once you've done three times you fulfilled your obligation. But if you want to, you can just keep going back again and again and again. I've actually seen, I've actually seen in shul a brother. When I was a kid, I saw a brother go up to another brother on Yom Kippur itself to ask for forgiveness over a family fight that they'd had some years before that the brother stopped speaking. And the brother that was approached refused to talk to him. On Yom Kippur. And my father saw that. He thought it was like one of the worst things he'd ever seen. And it was. It was horrendous. But, according to the Gemara, there's no obligation on the person to have to not be offended. But then the Gemara asks, why was it that he was he didn't allow Rav? Because, and then it goes into Rav Hanina's whole uh, motivation there about uh, he had uh, some job insecurity thrown into it and the whole range of issues. We're not here to judge the behavior of the Amoraim, but we are here to look at the extent to which a person needs to go in order to affect peace with their fellow human beings. And on that note, I want to talk about very quickly two other cases. And this is one of the most amazing cases of Teshuvah. Because I don't know if you heard about it, but in the Middle Ages, in the 12th century, Yep, in the 1100s, there was a dude called the Rumbum. 
Now, his name wasn't Rumbum. He didn't go around saying, hi, I'm Rumbum. Rumbum, of course, stands for Rabbi Moshe bin Maimon. Today, everybody talks about the Rumbum. Ah, oh, the Rumbum this, the Rumbum that. The Rumbum's like, you know, from on crack. I mean, there's no, no issues with the Rumbum. Everyone's, the Rumbum's pretty orthodox, pretty mainstream. You're not going to get thrown out of B'nai Brak for mentioning the Rumbum. But shortly after the Rumbum's lifetime, that was not the case. There were huge controversies about the writings of the Rambam because many, many sages and many rabbis of the Middle Ages felt that the Rambam was fundamentally wrong in a number of his approaches to Torah and particularly in his massive, not just his philosophical stuff that he wrote, but in his actual halachic work because the Rambam, when he wrote the Mishnah Torah, did not write any sources for his codes and said, you don't really have to read the Talmud, just read my work. They thought, and not entirely incorrectly, that was pretty outrageous, and it caused a lot of communities to ban the works of the Rambam. One of the great agitators of this was a rabbi called Rabbi Yona of Gerona. It's a cool name, Yona of Gerona. Obviously from the town of Gerona and who we now know as Rabbeinu Yonah. And Rabbeinu Yonah was a great agitator against the works of Maimonides, against the Rambam. In fact, so much so that he got the secular authorities involved and was definitely part of the agitation that led to the eventual burning of the Rambam's books in France in 1233. Famous event where the Christian church helped build the fire and they burnt the books of the Rambam. Within a few short years, within a few short years, Rabbeinu Yonah had the great misfortune to witness one of the most horrendous acts of cultural vandalism of the Middle Ages where the Christian church made a decree and carried it out and burnt every single copy of the Talmud in France. That was 24 cartloads of priceless manuscripts of the Talmud. The Talmud became a banned document in France in the middle of the 13th century and they burnt every single copy in the Place de la Concorde. When Rabbeinu Yonah saw that, he realized immediately the deep, deep error of his opposition to the Rambam. And so profound was this realization. This is, this is someone who isn't like, you know, an occasional shul-goer who says, you know, oh, I've done something wrong. Or even, you're a, you know, an average community rabbi. This is one of the great rabbis of the generation who'd spent most of his career agitating a certain stance, suddenly saying, you know what? I was wrong. We don't see that. We don't see that. Name the last time you saw that in our generation. Where a great, great spiritual leader turned around and said, I was wrong in my entire outlook. No, not that. <laughs> That's a different kind of thing. So he decided that he would go all the way to the land of Israel and prostrate himself on the grave of the Rambam with a minyan for an entire week, for seven days, to lie on the grave and to weep and to fast and to ask Maimonides' soul for forgiveness. Can you imagine? But he never made it. He got as far as, he got as, far as Toledo, which, if you're going from Gerona to the land of Israel, is relatively speaking not that far. And once he got to Toledo, they were very excited that he came to Toledo to ask him to stay. And in Toledo, he wrote 
the most famous text of the whole of the Middle Ages on the subject of repentance, a book called Sha'aret Tshuva, The Gates of Repentance. That book has been translated, you can read that book, in which he treats the whole subject of repentance as a scientific discipline breaks it down in pure Aristotelian style. These are the different modes of repentance. This is what you have to do. These are its different types. These are different things that bring about a person to repentance. A real scientific treatise on repentance called Sharet Shuva. And then, unfortunately, tragically, uh, he died suddenly and of a very, very rare disease. Obviously, people speculated that that may have been a punishment from heaven over the fact that he never fulfilled the vow that he took. He always, he always meant to go. He always said, actually, I'm only in Toledo temporarily. I'm actually on my way to the land of Israel to ask forgiveness for the Rambam. But he never actually ended up doing it. What he ended up, did end up doing was writing this incredible book called Sharet Shuvah. All right. I know I've spoken for an hour. I'm going to indulge you for one more minute. And I'm going to tell you because I said I would... This, this case is really leading us up to today, and I'll contract it to just a minute. Can I do that with you? And that is the most famous case in the 20, of Tshuva in the 20th century. I'm skipping now to the 20th century because we're already at 10 past 9. I'm going to skip to the 20th century. Who's the most famous case of Tshuva in the 20th century? Well, I'll tell you. I mean, there are many, but this one's very famous. You would know that following this thing called emancipation, when I say emancipation, you know what I'm talking about? It's the idea that they realize in certain countries in Europe that, you know what, Jews are actually humans and that they can have the same rights as other people in any given society. A radical idea. And throughout the 19th century, different countries come online with emancipation, including Germany. So Germany emancipates its Jews. And so a lot of generation in the second half of the 19th century, you have this thing called the secular Jew. Yep. And which was new, which was new. But by the end of the 19th century, you've already got some fairly established families who are uh, nominally Jewish. But... One of these families, one of these famous German-Jewish families, is the family of Rosenzweig. And the Rosenzweig family had had quite a number of brilliant kids go through and become educated, because now Jews could get educated in the secular system. And, but, you know, there was still, in Germany, although there was emancipation and Jews could do anything officially, you couldn't really do anything unless you made at least an outward conversion to Christianity. Yeah? In other words, you didn't have to, but you were not going to get a position at a university. You were not going to get a military uh, officership. You were not going to get a posting in the public service unless you did that. So a number of Jews were increasingly going to the baptismal font to at least Christianize themselves in name only. Some were doing it with a bit more commitment, but that was the thing. But the Rosenzweig family prided itself on never doing that. They remained Jewish in identity, but they were completely secular. And young Franz Rosenzweig, at an early age, is in his early 20s, ends up in an argument with a cousin about Christianity. And the cousin is convincing Franz that he has no intellectual objection. Franz realizes that he doesn't know enough about Judaism to actually answer the claims of his cousin who has converted to Christianity. And the cousin's convincing him to convert and eventually he says, you have no moral defense, there's no reason for you not to convert. And Franz had to agree. He lost the argument. However, being Franz Rosenzweig, he said, I'm not going to go into the church as a pagan. I'm going to go in as a Jew. And famously, he decided that he would go to shul. He hadn't been to shul hardly ever. I would go to shul on Yom Kippur and make peace with God and then cleanse my soul. And then the next day I will go and I will go into the church as a Christian to become a Christian as a Jew. Very high level approach to conversion to Christianity. But he went to shul, he went to Stibel in Berlin on Yom Kippur. And that experience fundamentally, fundamentally changed not only him, 
but changed the entire course of Jewish intellectual history of the 20th century. Because in that day, in Shul, in Berlin, Franz Rosenzweig realized that, I'm winding up, that you don't need any intermediary between you and God. That the Jewish people have a unique mode, both as individuals within a community, of standing spiritually naked before the creator of the universe and asking God to forgive them directly. It is the most profound existential spiritual experience that human beings can have. That is what Yom Kippur offers us. Franz Rosenzweig went on to write on the uh, famous Star of Redemption, the incredible book he did at Teshuvah. He started keeping mitzvot, he became religious, he then sat with Buber, translated the Torah. You know, some of the great figures in later uh, Jewish intellectual life, like Soloveitchik and so on, wrote their, their doctoral thesis on Rosenzweig. We don't know too much about him now in like maybe, you know, Sydney in 2019, but, but he is a huge figure. So I urge you, uh, given that we've run out of time, I urge you to look into the story of, of Franz Rosenzweig, probably the most famous story of Teshuva of the... Uh, and he was already a good person, but I'm talking about a deep religious... Uh, transformation inside him and realization about what the Jewish people are in the world and how they sit between creation and redemption by the unique process of revelation that they bring to the world. But at the core of all that is the whole concept of transformation and change, which is what uh, uh, this entire period of the year is all about. And I wish everyone a ktiva Find out more about David Solomon's books, recordings and classes, or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online.